0: Good morning. My name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in here while Tim is away at a conference. I want to welcome our members and especially our visitors. Welcome those who are listening via the Internet. Let's start with a word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day of rest. Uh, we thank you for giving us this Sabbath, and for what it represents. Um we ask that you send your Holy Spirit today to guide our study as we begin a new quarter. Uh, we're looking at the uh, book of Numbers um, and how you uh, introduce yourself to the children of Israel. Uh, guide our study today. Please be with those of our group who are not with us. Bring them safely back to us in the days and weeks ahead. And when you come again, may we all be standing ready. In Jesus' name, amen. We are beginning a new quarterly. It's a study of the book of Numbers. And lesson number 1 is called a new order. Someone read Sabbath's memory text, First Corinthians 10:11. Now, all these things happened
1: unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, the ends of the world that come.
0: What sort of thoughts did you have when you first read that? Well, my my first thought was what things? <laughs> what things happened, for examples? So I had to go back. All right, someone I'm going to take 1 Corinthians 10.1 and just read till you get tired and someone else pick it up. We'll read through verse 13.
2: For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate with the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel.
1: Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able If the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it.
0: Okay. Does the memory text make maybe a little more sense reading it in context, Mm -hmm. in context of that entire passage? uh, It does to me. Looking at verse 5, why do we think God was not pleased with most of them and scattered their bodies over the wilderness of the desert? We're told that
3: without faith it's impossible to please God. And many times they evidenced a the
0: complete lack of faith. Did, first of all, did you hear her? No. Okay. She said, we're told that without faith it's impossible to please God. And uh, those who were scattered over the desert uh, repeatedly showed a lack of faith. We're going to talk a little bit about faith here uh, in Wednesday's lesson. What sort of faith does God expect of us?
4: A living faith.
0: I beg your pardon? A living faith. Okay. What does that resemble? Yes.
5: Well, you know, that that faith experience
4: boils down to us believing that all this really works. And in our own minds, we like, oh, you know, I, I've got a better way of doing things. And, you know, I, you know I, don't want, I don't want to have all the trouble of doing it his way. I, my way seems better. And I think it boils down to having faith that his way really
6: is best, even though in our reasoning it doesn't seem that way. Okay. A living faith
0: should be a growing faith. A living faith should be a growing faith, she said. Does God ask of us a faith without providing uh, us any um, evidence of uh, faithfulness or trustworthiness, or does he request us a blind faith?
6: He gives us evidence.
0: He gives us evidence. Harkening back to the children of Israel, what sorts of evidence did they have, referring to those who died in the wilderness, what evidence did they have of God's faithfulness?
2: Had a, uh, a miraculous deliverance. Uh, they were people that were subjugated to other folks that they could not leave voluntarily. So the whole plagues and all of that that freed them. Their crossing um, the Red Sea, all of these things. Their their even their sustenance as they were there was all provided. They had brought really a little with them, or if they had, it was been consumed relatively quickly. So, I mean, everything that they had, they were kept warm at night by this cloud of fire, cool in the day by this cloud in the sky to block the sun.
0: I mean... Numerous evidences. In fact, Paul outlines it uh, earlier in the chapter. They were brought out of Egypt. They were passed through the Red Sea. They were given food and water. Um, They were given protection from the elements. So, the folks who grumbled and therefore died as they wandered another 40 years um, were given many, many, many evidences of God's faithfulness and they chose to ignore that. Is there any danger of us doing the same thing today? What's the primary evidence that we have of God's faithfulness? Well, we
6: have everything that was written in the Bible plus we have the evidence in our own lives.
3: How God has led us, Russell. Yes. In one of our previous lessons, last quarter, mm-hmm. there was the quotation from Mrs. White, and it says, it "said that Jesus' heart is hurt when we, when His people waver between doubt and faith, because He has given them unmistakable evidence of His care, and so." You know, when we are just up and down in our emotions,
0: that's not helpful to us or to Jesus. <laughs> okay. Again, the question, what, what's the most compelling evidence of God's faithfulness that has happened yet in history? The cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, so we have fairly compelling evidence, you know, not, and not only that, but uh, as she said, the evidence of Transformation that has and is occurring in our lives. Let's move on to Monday's lesson. We're discussing order and organization here in this lesson. Anybody here that went to Spalding? I'm mid? <laughs> okay, some in the back. Well, yeah, Mr. Babbitt was gone before uh, he came around. He was my seventh grade teacher, Weston Babbitt, and. As soon as you walked in the room, there was a a sign over the chalkboard that said, Order is the first law of the universe. That was the first thing I saw on day one when I walked into Mr. Babbitt's class. I thought, oh no, now what? And he ran his class like a military commander. I mean, you you were on time getting in from the recess, or you were writing a thousand sentences that said, I will not straggle. (laughs) You did not disrupt the class. You... Participated um, as was appropriate, weren't late, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, it was it was a well-run class, and you know what? There was another class that was between our partition. And I'm not going to name the teacher, and you could hear bedlam through that. It was chaos, and at least once a week we would hear, "Quiet down, please. Quiet down, please. Shut up! I said, shut up!" <laughs> <laughs> we would hear that coming through the through the partition, and we look up, and Mr. Bab would just roll his eyes and keep on orderly teaching his class. I learned a lot about uh, organization and order that year. In Sunday's lesson, um, the Lord asks Moses and Aaron to, and to take a census. The lesson asks, what kind of a census did he uh, ask them to draw up, and why? It
6: seemed like it was a census to see. How big an army they could have. Okay. Because
0: they set up military age. Men ages 20 years and older. Okay, this begs the question, why would Israel need an army? They had
6: a whole land
0: to conquer. Someone look up Exodus 23, 28, please.
1: And I will send a before you, who shall drive out the hand.
0: The and the Hitite from the Lord. Hmm. Okay, this is God speaking to the Israelites. He's telling them he's going to send the hornets ahead to drive out the uh, the heathen. All right, who has Deuteronomy seven twenty?
1: Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are locked and hide themselves from you perish.
0: Another reference to hornets. Anybody been stung by a hornet? Yeah, it's no fun. Joshua twenty four twelve. Sounds like we have a theme developing here.
5: And I sent the hornet before you, which drave them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword nor with thy bow. So he actually used the hornets that he was threatening to do. Huh.
0: So if the Lord had every intention of driving out the Canaanites Ahead of the children of Israel. Why did they need an army? Or did they need an army?
5: Sounds like they didn't trust him. Yes,
0: did. Sounds like they didn't trust him. Did the Israelites want to go to battle? Did they want to participate in the driving out of the heathen?
1: Oh, I think some of them definitely want to.
0: Some of them did.
1: In this tradition, they were used to... Fighting for what they wanted, fighting for land. So to have hornets go and attack another army, it was just beyond their thinking. You know, I mean I I have a hard time now. Even now after reading all the stories and you're imagining that God could take something so that you know, destroy another nation.
0: Yeah.
1: Because it's not what he used to. Right.
0: Yes.
2: I I think that's part of the theme, it's kinda reverse psychology. This number you is to see how small you really are, and you're going to go against this great group of people, supposedly. If you do it in your own
4: strength,
2: it's impossible, and that's the whole point. Is see what God can do with the little things. It's not that you will have to do it. but I can use insignificant things to do what I've promised that I
4: will do.
0: Okay, that's thank you. That's an interesting point. didn't bother to think of that. Might we also have a? Um a dynamic here that we're dealing with a, an infinite and all-knowing god who can see the future and he he knows that the israelites are going to want to engage in battle so he he says well my intention is to send you know the the nature and the elements ahead of you and and drive them out in my time but if you insist on insist on taking up the sword let's do it in an organized manner he also, God also understood that the Israelites might uh, might have been prey to another army. They may have had to have been organized not for offensive warfare, but for defensive warfare, because they were they were traveling through lands that were occupied. They were and they were about to go to a, a land that was occupied by warlike peoples. So they may they may have had some need to defend themselves. What does it say about our ability to change God's mind? Yes, sir.
5: I uh, just want to mention about this. It's interesting that um, the, the tools of war that God had his, his armies of Israel to employ, for example, with the trumpets just marching around Jericho. Mm-hmm. So it's not uh, convincing to me that he established an army just to be sure they could defend themselves, or that they could drive out the people before them, but like you said, more or less to uh, let them see that uh, they needed God's power.
0: Thank you for the credit. I didn't say that. He, that was that was his point. Um, yeah, I well said. I agree. God spent a long, long time trying to reveal to the children of Israel who He was and what He was about. And one of the things that I struggled with for a long, long time was the the apparent dichotomy between Old Testament God and New Testament God. It was difficult for me to see how God could put 20-some thousand of his children to death just with the destroying angel, and how he could put 185,000 Assyrians to death. They're his children, too, on a whim, apparently a whim. Instead of viewing the Old Testament through the filter of, of Jesus Christ and, and looking at God's efforts to heal not only the children of Israel, but to heal the pagan and, and, heathens that were surrounding them, has made a much clearer picture of, of the God, the Old Testament God and His patience and His forbearance in dealing with the, not only the children of Israel, but the heathens. God's intent was to heal the, the heathens. It wasn't to kill them. Wasn't to destroy them. Yes.
7: I don't think it was just on a whim because there's several texts that he said that he wasn't going to kill people because they hadn't come to a point where there was no return. It was when they came to a point of no return that he destroyed that nation when they weren't, you know, there was no possibility of them changing their minds in their
0: thought process. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. My my point was that in my perception, it was on a whim. You know, when, when I perceived uh, a god of thunder and lightning uh, and, and a god of anger, my, my perception was it was arbitrary and on a whim. Uh, thank you for correcting that. You're right, it wasn't on a whim. Uh, there, was, there was evidence and purpose for putting his children to sleep. Yes?
6: You also have to keep in mind that, as in the time of the flood, God was trying very hard to preserve a people who he knew would follow through, and the line of, for Christ to come through that line. And he had to destroy those nations that had reached their full cup of iniquity in order to keep the Israelites as pure as possible and not have evil influences coming in. And even though it seems like they failed... He did have a line that kept going
0: until Christ. Who preserved the knowledge of God. Yeah. And it got down pretty narrow at one point, didn't it? I mean it got down to the point where how many righteous men were on the earth at the time of the flood? One. One. Not his sons, no one else. One righteous man on the earth at the time of the flood. And it is fascinating to, to think about all those required of humanity to be saved at the time of the flood was what all they had to do was get on the boat they didn't have to they didn't have to believe it was going to rain they didn't have to believe any of it they just had to get on the boat for whatever reason in a way eight people did and one of them was righteous how does this census being taken differ from the census that David took when he was king which resulted in the in the deaths of Twenty uh, some thousand Israelites.
6: Seems like David was doing it to prove how strong and how good he was, how how many citizens he had, how many soldiers he had. It was a matter of, of his personal pride.
0: Okay, someone read Second Samuel twenty four verse one.
7: Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, "Go no number Israel and
0: Judah." Okay, so here we have the Lord, ostensibly the Lord, telling David to, to number to take a census. The Lord was telling Moses and Aaron to take a census. What version is that, by the way?
7: New King James. Yeah.
0: Okay, someone have the NIV.
5: And the anger of the Lord burns against Israel.
0: He incited David against him, saying, go
8: and take a census of Israel. Okay. Yes. The message says, he tested David by telling him, go and take a census
0: of Israel. Okay. This is uh, the First Chronicles version. It's First Chronicles 21.1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David had Joab, and the commander of the troops, say, go and count the Israelites from Beershebal to Dan, then report back to me, so that I may know how many there are. Now what?
1: Also, if you read down in verse 10, it says, David felt ashamed after he had counted the people. He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by what I have done. So in verse 1, the Lord is telling him to do it. In verse 10, he's saying, I've sinned against you. That doesn't make sense.
0: Not on the surface, it doesn't. You're right. How do we reconcile this... Uh, Apparent contradiction between Samuel and Chronicles.
4: Somewhere it says that it was Satan that tempted And Brad Cole, who has a, a website, God's Character, if you link from him, he presented that as a lot of times God is interpreted as doing something. Yet, if you look at it deeper, it's actually not what seems on the surface. And, and and he presented this exact example as something that that people will say it was God who. God's anger burned, but later on it's shown that it was Satan that tempted David and he went along with the
0: temptation. Okay. I like where we're going with this. Yes.
1: If we take in the context of Romans 1, we know that God's
6: anger is letting them go.
0: Excellent. It seems
6: to me like he wanted to do it and God let him just do
0: it. Excellent point. Uh, I think the key. To, the, to understanding this passage, is understanding what God's anger is. God's wrath, God's anger, God's fierce jealousy. What, what is that?
4: Letting us have a long
0: He hides his face. He turns away.
4: It could be
2: that he was
0: upset that they
4: already had this desire
2: to go do this, so he let them go do it. In other words, he didn't want them to do it, but that's... They they had it in the head. This this is what we got to go do.
0: There are numerous references in, in in the Old Testament where God where it's the scripture stays explicitly. God in His anger turned His face. God in His anger turned away. I have turned away from from these people, and let them follow their own desires and hearts. Okay, this is this is exactly what happened. And when God when God turns his face from us, and we hear when he removes his shield of protection, we are left helpless uh, in the face of te- temptation. Yes? Later on, I mean, he explains, I, I think, pretty well, when it was all done,
8: David was over with guilt because he had counted the people replacing trust in statistics. Okay. I have to say, that has to be the only loving response that God can do, because if he does not, then freedom does not exist.
0: Well said. That's, that's correct. But this whole notion of counting and whatnot, I think God's original
8: plan, you know, these, these social insects, if you will, come from this order called Hymenoptera. And um, they're very orderly. It's, it's a really fascinating. Ant you know, society has chaos and, and loyalty, and, and you see that kind of built into nature. So it's, what's fascinating is that God's original army, if you will, of ants and termites and wasps uh, is innumerable. You know, I just finished reading a book by a guy named Edward Wilson called Sociobiology, where he explores the social nature of these these social insects. I've seen a couple of videos of his on YouTube, and nobody knows uh, how many of these insects actually exist. Mm-hmm. Wait, they are the greatest mass on earth, the living mass, if you want to call it.
0: Really? Yeah. Wow. You know, and so, you know, in the Amazon jungles, you can have
8: just billions of these things, and they invented total warfare, you know, they've, they've got this, because of their chemical, their chemical nature of their communication, they, when they go to war, they go to total war. I mean, they're going to push whatever's in front of them out. But, you know, what's interesting is that using wasps and things like this doesn't mean that humans naturally have to die. I mean... these these social insects take over an area and you just have to leave. You can't deal with them in any other way. So it does not imply that they would have been killed. But the dichotomy here is really fascinating because on the one hand, here's God saying, I've got an infinite army if you want to call it, that cannot be counted. And the people are saying, no, we'd rather count ourselves and kind of get an idea of what we're dealing with here. So (laughs) the between
0: the two is kind of fascinating i agree thank you for that so back to my question what sort of fundamental difference is there between the the census and uh numbers and the census david's time god
3: actually asked for the one in numbers
0: she said god actually asked for the uh for the one in numbers okay well based on our understanding today um yeah, I think it's pretty clear that God didn't uh, ask for the one in David's time. Uh, that's that's a good, that's one difference. Any others? Uh, bear in mind, I don't have a, a right answer. I'm just looking, I'm looking for input here.
1: Maybe part of the reason why David wanted him to do the census was because then he would have some sort of control. And then he's taking control from God in doing that. And that would be why it would be a sin. Because he's wanting to
3: maintain order and control over...
0: Okay, you, As the Commander in Chief, certainly possible. Okay, let's move on a little bit. They take a census, and they have a fairly high, a fairly significant number of people. Someone read the quote from the Bible commentary at the bottom of Sunday's lesson.
5: The time of Abraham, God would not allow the Amorites to be destroyed. Here, God revealed His long suffering. The Amorites were in enmity against his law. They believed not in him as the true and living God, but among them there were a few good persons, and for the sake of these few, he forbore law.
0: Thoughts?
6: I think she also makes a statement that now God is blessing everybody for the sake of the few who are loyal to him, waiting for others to come in, and they don't realize that the Christians are providing protection for them, you might say. It's going on even now.
0: Okay, thank you. Yes, sir?
9: I would reconcile that he's protecting many for the sake of a few. And here, when David takes the census, he punishes many for the sins of one.
0: What do we know about the 20-odd thousand that were put to death? All we know is that they were killed. That's all scripture tells us. Uh, we don't know anything about their hearts. We don't know anything about whether they were true believers believers in the true God or whether they were idolaters or, or what. We have no idea. Maybe scripture is intentionally vague about that, about their characters. Okay? It may be that God selected 20-some thousand of his faithful followers and put them to rest so they wouldn't have to endure uh, you know, any more living in a sinful world. It may be that he took 20-odd thousand of those who had completely made up their minds and and chosen to reject a loving God and put them to rest, having fully developed their characters. We don't know.
9: And not the one who actually committed the sin.
0: Correct. Well, remember God gave David a choice. He gave him three choices.
9: Three days of punishment from God, three months of running from his enemies, or three years of famine.
0: Okay
6: you well, we have to
9: remember that that was just the first death.
6: They were laid to rest. Yes. they will be resurrected in the right resurrection.
0: Correct. Yes, ma'am.
7: With uh, people in authority like David, he was the king. So when he made a, a decision, it was more profound. God dealt with it more profoundly than he would with Joe down the Street. It's just like anybody now. I mean, if President Obama does something, it's more profound than if I do it. That people don't care if I do the same thing, but when he does it, it's going to make a profound effect and he has to be dealt with in a more public way than if somebody else did it. Okay. I, you know, dealt with him a oh, harsher sure probably than with someone else.
2: You know, leadership has a profound effect on people. We see it in organizations, corporations, where Uh, how leadership looks at things affects other people and and, and trickles down. In other words, um, we see how people respond and act to that. At the same time, I think also leaders are pushed by people as well. There can be a groundswell to do something and leadership says, yes, we're going to do this. So it could have been that many of these people were part of saying, hey, you know, let's, let's take a count and see how good we are. I mean, it could be both ways.
0: Absolutely. I have no insight as to why these people were selected and, and why others were spared.
7: But he knew it was wrong because Joab didn't want to do it. He said, oh, please, you know, don't, we don't need to do this. You know your people are so numerous. Don't it,
0: do this. That's right. His top, his top general advised him against it. That's correct. Um, let's head on to um, Monday's lesson. In the big picture, what what was the task of the uh, children of Israel? Because they were uh, they were brought out of Egypt, what were they being prepared for? They
3: were being prepared God's to be God's representatives.
0: They were being prepared to, to be God's representatives. To reveal
1: his character. To,
0: the world. to reveal God's character to the world. So the heathen nations that were surrounding them were to look in at an orderly, organized camp, uh, and to see. The hand of God, blessing the children of Israel, to see that they traveled through the wilderness and their clothes didn't rot. They were fed constantly and watered constantly. They didn't. They didn't perish. Think about the impact that that would have had if if Israel had done its job. Yes,
5: they were told to kill all those people and drive them out. So who were they to?
0: Were they told that after they failed to do their job or before?
5: Before they occupied the land. That they didn't, so therefore there were Moabites, Philistines, Amorites, and so forth, and constantly they were in, in trouble because of
4: that.
0: Had the Israelites fulfilled their commitments to reveal the character of God when they reached the land? of Canaan. No, they hadn't. Did they ever fulfill that commitment?
6: Not as a nation. Not as
0: a whole Not as a nation. They didn't. In fact, when God himself came to earth, what did they do? (laughs) They murdered him. Hung him on a cross. Yes, sir. When
9: were they given this directive? When were they told about this commitment? Their job was to reveal God's character. We're aware of when were
0: they? Oh, that I don't know. I mean, God, God told Abraham, you know, way back half a millennium before. You know, I will make you a great nation, but you will your your children will be enslaved in a land that's not their own, and I will bring them up out of that land and restore this land where you stand, you know, to your descendants. You know that that was that was the covenant, and there was.
9: But we talk about their job being to demonstrate God's love, to reveal who God is. But I I don't see what they were told about that.
0: Well, consider you're an Israelite slave at the time of the Exodus. You and your ancestors have been living in Egypt for 400 years, um, at least probably half of that time enslaved uh, in Egypt. So, say, 250 years of, of slavery. Think back 250 years ago. America wasn't even a nation so that's that's quite a bit of time elapsed several and numerous generations elapsed and uh, consider a life of slavery where from sun up to sundown and later all you're doing is making bricks dragging straw carrying water to other slaves etc cetera, et cetera. that that is that is your entire existence how quickly do you think the, the knowledge of God would be obliterated from your mind? One generation. Further. Maybe. Yeah, maybe less. Okay? And um, Scripture and inspired writing indicates that they were taken into slavery because the knowledge of God was obliterated from their mind before they went to slavery. They enjoined the heathen and pagan practices of of idolatrous Egypt, And that's why they were taken into slavery. They they forgot the covenant with Abraham, and they forgot the covenant of circumcision. Therefore, when God brought them out of Egypt, and He gave Moses the Ten Commandments on stone, how did the Ten Commandments start?
6: I am the God that brought you out of
0: Egypt. I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God spent years and years centuries trying to reveal to the children of israel this is who i am this is this is my law not not only the law of the ten commandments but the law of love the law that says love your enemies bless those who curse you and they never got it so what did god do
1: He meets us right where we're at and takes us along just as fast as he can, but no faster than he's able
0: to. <laughs> no faster than we let him, correct. But ultimately, what did he do with the chosen nation of Israel? He
6: rejected
0: them. Or? He let them go. He, let them go. he had to. If he didn't, he wouldn't be a God of freedom, yes.
2: It seems to me that God so desired a relationship with these people so that he could reveal his character to them. In other words, he had built this tabernacle so he could live close as he could to them, revealing every day who he was to them and hoping they would catch a glimpse of that. And as they did, taking Paul's words, as we behold, we become changed. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what he wanted. And for whatever reason, <laughs> that they didn't spend their time beholding or becoming changed. Some of them did, but some of them didn't. And as they would have gone into Canaan, as they beheld and continue to behold God, I think they would have become more like God, and that would have shown out to the people that were around them.
0: Taking that uh, a step further, and this idea that the nation of Israel was intended to be a revelation of God's character, God had a lesson within a lesson. He chose the Levites out of the tri- tribe of Israel for what purpose? To take care of the temple and to be teachers. So the Levites' task was to reveal God to the Israelites. Israelites' task was to reveal God to the to the surrounding nations. Did the Levites succeed? Well, they failed miserably. <laughs> they failed miserably, yes, they did. <laughs> Several times. You had a comment. It seems to
6: me like God's first plan would have been for this, he, the heathen nations to see God in the Israelites and be converted.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And would not have been destroyed absolutely. Jews,
6: and so they had to be
0: let go uh, what does God say as I live I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked he doesn't want any he doesn't want any of us to to reject him and therefore die yes
1: the question about when were the Israelites told that they were supposed to be a witness to the world and God had told them you're going to be a witness my character witness to the world they wouldn't have accepted that or it would have put tremendous pressure on it they couldn't have lived up to The way that he was revealed, and he, even though they failed miserably in so many ways, God has been revealed through his interactions with them to later generations, maybe not at that time, but it has
0: been revealed. Yeah, that's what our memory text says. These things were given as examples to us. So can ethnic cleansing cleansing be a
8: revelation of God's character? Because we need to address this question, I think, you know, they were charged to eliminate, you know, The Philistines, the Amorites—a revelation of God's character.
0: Are
1: they supposed to be driven out by
0: hornets? Yes. God did not want them to be killed. His God's original intent was to drive the heathen out from the land with the elements, with His innumerable army, as you uh, put it earlier. The Israelites demanded that they be able to take up the sword, so God said, "Okay, if that's what you're bent on." This is the way it needs to be done, because if you need if you leave any of them alive, they will corrupt you. So kill every man, woman, child, and beast among them. And they failed at that.
8: Is it about so, corrupting Israel? Or is it about the freedom of the Amorites to negate themselves? You understand what I'm saying? If you say to God repeatedly over generation after generation after generation, God, we want nothing to do with you. And God is the source of all life in the universe. If you negate that source, and you say, I do not want that source, you're essentially negating yourself, are you not? Yes. Okay? Absolutely. In, in a sense, in a very strange sense, it strikes me. That in some respects, this is a revelation of God's, the limit to which the... How would you put it? J.I. Packer made a statement once in his book, Knowing God, he said... God's wrath is nothing more and nothing less than God giving people what they themselves have chosen. So if the Amorites, over a period of four or 500 years, say, we do not want God, we do not want God in our life, they are essentially saying, we do not want the source of life. And by doing that, they are saying, we essentially want to kill ourselves. If God does not actualize that for them, what does that say about God and His the extent to which he is going to allow people the freedom to choose their own destiny. He's going to, basically, once again, we get back to there's the outer limit of freedom. And God says, well, you can negate me, but now I'm not going to respect that decision. I'm going to, you're going to allow you to continue to live on. That's why sin seems to be such a strange thing, because sin says you can have your cake and eat it too. We want to live, but we want to negate the source of life. And at some point God says we have to have a decision.
0: Correct. And humans don't most humans don't think of death the way that God thinks of death. Okay, we think of death as oh, you know for example, my father passed away about a month and a half ago. He wanted to be cremated. We placed a small box of, of ash in the ground and covered it. Okay. Dad dad's not with us anymore. Okay, that's the way we think of death. But dad will be resurrected. And one resurrection or another. The Amorites who completely rejected anything to do with God will be resurrected. in one resurrection or another, either the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. And they will be resurrected with the same character, same thought patterns, same personality, same processes and, and, and behaviors that they went into the grave, the first grave with. And at the very end is when God will say, you were given over to your choices. You were given over to the choice you made to reject the only source of life in the universe. And each one of us will face that same thing.
8: I think we read right in the Corinthians on this thing, this is an example for us. So you take a look at this story. If you do not choose God, you're choosing to negate yourself, and it will be a total negation. That going to be a few people left. You will be totally gone. See how that that, that miniature story, it, it tells us what will happen at the end of time. It's it's a little miniature picture of, of the philosophical, you know, consequences of what happens at the end
0: of time. I agree. Um, getting back to your question about is ethnic cleansing a, a revelation of God's character? What we consider ethnic cleansing today, I I do not think that's a revelation of God's character. I think it's a revelation of someone else's character the Amorites weren't weren't destroyed because they were ethnically different the God that sees the future knew that if they weren't eliminated then they would corrupt Israel and that's exactly what happened
4: do you think it's possible that God allowed war or killed in the suffering prematurely I, I was always under the impression when I was growing up that the destruction of the moral was because of homosexuality. That was, for some reason, I had that idea in my head. And just recently, I learned that it was because God uh, said that they were not taking care of the needs of the poor. They were mistreating people. Um, if you go back, we are talking about the Amorites. I don't know if the Amorites are an exact example, but. We make a lot of this stuff in the Old Testament pretty vanilla for our own ability to comprehend it. Because child sacrifice, in and of itself, was extremely, extremely rough. And I don't know, I, I, I struggle with the same thing you did, why did God kill all these people? But it made me feel a little better to think that maybe God just stopped it at some point because they were taking babies them In horrendous ways that we can't even begin to
0: talk about. I have one issue with with the semantics. God didn't kill anyone. Right. God has not God has not killed anyone. Okay. Well, he, he has put He has put numerous, countless of His children to sleep. Okay. Well, we. we but He's not killed anyone.
4: But the, the point is that the suffering stopped. Is that is that an appropriate way to look at that, considering the fact that. We don't really get into the details of what these people were doing to each
0: other. I can honestly say that I don't know why God chose to put some to sleep and chose to let others remain awake. I don't know. That's why God reads our hearts. We don't.
3: Could it be that when they first came to the land of Canaan and they were told to move in, you know, God said that he was giving them possession of the land. He said nothing about destroying the people who were there. And they were too afraid and didn't trust God enough to allow him to do it and could it be that their refusal to obey him, their refusal to go in and let God drive them out and then have all of these people see what God did on behalf of, of the children of Israel if they could have seen that then it would have converted them but instead they saw a cowardly people leave and wander in the wilderness for 40 years and I would Be willing to bet that it simply hardened their hearts further so that there was no remaining.
0: I think that's a great insight. With regard to the task that the Levites were appointed, this is the question uh, in the first question in Monday's lesson. I found a a great quote from Ellen White, Gospel Workers, page 157. She's speaking about God being a God of order order, and organization. And how Satan one of Satan's primary focuses and primary works is to sow disorder and discord into the, the children of and the followers of God because, because it disrupts the work of God. One one of the things I have all often struggled with, and still do, frankly, is that if if Satan's government is a government of chaos and a government of disorder and a government of Uh, backbiting and dishonesty and et cetera et cetera. How in the world has he kept his third of the angels, his followers, how has he kept them on task?
1: Evil can be very orderly. I mean, you know, you can can see evil people put things together and be a lot more dedicated to orderly manipulation and stuff a lot of times, you know, but it doesn't make any difference if I mean, that's not what God intended for, for order to be about. But Satan is very orderly. He's precisely knowing what he wants to do and, and carrying out very carefully. So he, I think he does use the order. You know, he, he's a mastermind that has caused a great deal of conflict in our universe because of his carefulness and everything that he's done. But it's not for good, and it's not
7: motivated for good.
0: We're going to have to close on that. Thank you all for your input, insights. Um, let's close with prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we thank you for the examples that you have set before us, the children of Israel and the Levites and bringing them out of uh, slavery. Um, we ask that you continue to open our minds to truth uh, and continue to change our, to transform our characters so that uh, they're more like yours, so that when you, we meet you, We can see you face-to-face for who you really are. In the name of Jesus,
9: amen.